leaders are faced with a choice where they can wait and see what the future brings and then respond to it, but their degrees of freedom, their degrees of freedom in responding are going to be a lot narrower. They're going to respond to the change. With Provoke, our thinking is that it's far better for leaders to be the driving force of the change itself, to instead of waiting to see what the future brings, to shape it. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Lead the Team. I have Steve Goldbach here who serves as Deloitte's Chief Strategy Officer. Prior to joining Deloitte, Steve was a partner at Monitor Group and head of its Newark office and head of strategy over at Forbes. He's a globally recognized strategist, author, and thought leader. And Steve helps executives and their teams transform their organizations by making challenging and pragmatic strategy choices in the face of uncertainty. And my goodness, have we had a lot of uncertainty around here lately. He focuses his work on clients and industries undergoing large-scale transformation. And Steve helps companies combine rigor and creativity to create their own future. Now, Steve has actually co-authored two best-selling books, which we're going to get into a bit today. Detonate, Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Mind to Survive, and Provoke. How Leaders Shape the Future by Overwhelming Fatal Human Flaws. He's also been nominated um, in the Thinkers 50 and received the Distinguished Achievement Award in Strategy and just a lot of different awards here. Now, Steve holds degrees from Queens University in Kingston, where he serves on the Global Advisory Board of its Smith School of Business and Columbia Business School. Steve, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Thank you, Ben. Really nice to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, it is a lot to get through because there's so much awesomeness there. A lot of brand name companies. And you're a fan of the single word book title, which I am too. <laughs> indeed, so. and, and, and indeed, Ben, there was, we were also told that it was not a good idea to have negative book titles, but that's turned out uh, okay for us. We <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You have definitely well. So, a funny story. My book's called the Quit Alternative, and I thought, I need to put Quit on the cover. And yeah, it, it definitely leaps out. And y'all can't see it here if you're listening, but Steve's got you know images of his book uh, covers back here, and they definitely stand out. Detonate and provoke. So, before we get into those, though, let's kind of wind back this because I, I want to hear a little bit more about this. We were talking before. We started rolling here. I'm based here in Charleston. You're based in New York, but a lot of your book writing journey, it sounds like, started here in Charleston. Maybe walk, walk us through that. Yeah. Back when I was transitioning from Monitor Group to Forbes and moving as a Canadian to the to the US, I took some time and 
the idea was to drive from Charleston to California. And I was a golfer at the time. I haven't golfed much. That's a product of living in New York City. Um, <laughs> yeah, where do you uh, golf around there, right? Yeah, you, 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 you take the subway up to the Bronx and, yeah. and, golf, and golf there. Um, or you need a car, which I have not owned until three months ago for my entire adult life. Um, but the, the idea was, oh, I was going to go to business school and I was going to take a break and uh, I was going to take a sabbatical and play some golf. Mm-hmm. And the idea was it would be a fun trip to play a different golf course. But the really interesting and growth part about it was that I was going to do it alone and walk on to you know, public courses around the country and just try to get paired up with whoever uh, I could get paired up with. And at provoke and detonate have at their core an empathy and an understanding of human behavior. And that's really a lot of what you're going to hear throughout this podcast. Yeah. And I think some of that really came to understanding of, of playing golf in the South, talking to people, trying to understand their points of view, and they were offering them whether I wanted them or not playing golf. <laughs> on the golf were, course, absolutely. You know, on a golf course, you're, you know, you're kind of stuck for yeah. three or four hours listening to so, other people. So, so who, who's one of the more, uh, more memorable characters that you met in your golf course journey across the years? I would say the most, well, I would say the most difficult uh, conversation I had was in, uh, in Las Vegas. And I ended up being paired up with a dentist. And at the time, my wife, and I just will say my, my, my then fiance, um, but now for, you know, over 20 years, my wife was attending Harvard business school and she was by far the, she is by far the smartest person I've ever met. She is now the chief responsibility officer of Alliance Bernstein. And she was the number one in our class. And I remember when I shared this with the gentleman that I got paired up with, I shared, he asked about me and what I was doing and, and I said, you know, I've got a fiance at Harvard Business School. And usually the response is, wow, that's pretty impressive. And the response was literally said to me, that's a lot of education to waste on a woman. Ooh. And I remember thinking, boy, what am I going to, how am I going to deal with this in the middle of the golf course? And I can't accept that, you know, I'm not going to just leave that one you know, you know, lie and kind of ignore it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh-huh. And I'm going to, and, and even though that might've been a convenient thing to do. So I, I confronted him. I said like, Hey, like, you know, she's, she's awesome. And she's got a great career ahead of her. And basically said, I think we, I said my piece and we ended up, we, we played, but that was a forcing mechanism that there are going to be times in my life where I'm going to disagree, but I need to be able to productively disagree. And perhaps it's not, hmm. You know, I could have stormed off and walked off and in protest, I tried to convince him that he was that he was wrong and that she had done great things and she was going to do great things. And I'm not sure that I necessarily convinced him, but it reminded me that that was something that was important for me to do and uh, and be a supporter of hers. Yeah, no, there, there, there are so many layers to that story just being so caught off guard, probably because you're not that's not a conversation you run into a lot. And uh, thankfully, and being able to sort of ground yourself in the moment and find a way to move forward. Cause so you went ahead and played golf, right? 
We played golf. Play? I will okay. say we didn't we didn't talk as much. Um, the conversation was had. limited. The conversation Did you feel was more fuel to beat him. You know, a lot of the times when you play golf as a single, you're kind of playing your game, and there's and then there's someone else. In this particular yeah. case, because we were two singles, it was a little trickier. It was just we kind of I said my piece. We played our game, and you know, we got it. Effectively agreed to disagree, and we were yeah. making niceties. But this is kind of what I think. Ben is a microcosm of the U.S. society. We need to be able to productively confer with each other, even when we don't necessarily agree on issues. And yeah. perhaps I wasn't going to convince him in a four-hour round based on his lifetime of bias that he had, <laughs> but I at least wanted to make a statement that maybe he should reconsider it. Man, there, there are so many things here to like this. I love this activity that you did where you're getting on the public courses and it gets you outside of your bubble. I think a lot of leaders run into this because you build a team. Now you're you're with your family, you're with your team. A lot of times you, you're selecting your team, you're, you have a lot of influence on who's on the team. And it's so easy to sort of create these bubbles that, that we're in. But it's also important, I think, to think about what you did there where we have these moments as leaders where we're putting ourselves in situations where we're with where we're going to meet new people and they're not all going to agree with us and they're going to be shocking differences in how we see the world but y'all don't you think as a leader think back to those moments in your life isn't that where you grow the most i mean you could have literally started out this interview taking this in any direction but you chose a hard moment. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there for people to be reflecting on right now. I, I look, I think that the the most growth that I I had um have come in have come in difficult moments. Um and because you've you're you're learning your brain, you know, in easy moments, your brain is on more autopilot than not. And in difficult moments, you're figuring out new things about the world. Look, if I were to go back to my you know, I'm um, 48 now. If I were to go back to my 26-year-old self and say, would I do things differently? Would I be more vociferous in my rejection of his point of view? Would I try to engage him differently? I probably would make different choices. I've grown a lot since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the on reflection, I I do think that I've realized that you you know that you are you have two choices. You can reject someone's point of view, or you can try to convince them otherwise and engage with them. And I think far too frequently, we do the the thing where we reject out of hand without trying to understand what other people think and where they're coming from. And I actually think that that's part of the challenge that we have in society. We are rejecting too quickly, as opposed to finding things and trying to share yep. things and, and be curious about other people's point of view. I really like that approach. And I think that's a great takeaway for leaders right out of the gate. Because in that moment, Steve could have just been like, you know what? It's not worth it to play with this guy. Like, I don't, you know, just drop. I'm I'm taking my clubs and I'm going home. Um, And I would have had no impact if I did that. Yeah. I would have had the opportunity to have no impact. He would have gone, well, there's just another, you know, whatever, liberal Eastern or whatever. Yeah. There's a, yeah, these New Yorkers so full of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it must be nice, Harvard business. Yeah. 
And you, yeah, it's interesting. And you put yourself in that position. There's so many preconceived notions probably by both parties, but, but you went ahead and stuck it out and you're not BFFs necessarily, but yeah, you give your chance, oh, give yourself a chance to make an impact. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I knew I wouldn't see the guy again, so I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily try to be his BFF, but it gave me the opportunity to say a few things and maybe, you know, and, and maybe he's reflected on it, you know, over the years, maybe not. But yeah, or he's sitting there telling his buddies in Vegas today, man, I met this New Yorker one time on the golf course. You're never going to believe this. <laughs> he's having the opposite conversation. Or maybe, or may, you know, maybe he's saying, I, you know, that guy was right 20 years ago. You know, maybe yep. he, yep. maybe he had a daughter and she went and, and did something amazing. And he's like, wow, where, where did I come from? That guy was right. Yeah. And, so. and, and this takes us down the rabbit hole of how people really change. And if they really do. And I think it's important to understand. I mean, I do a lot of speaking. I know you do too. And you've written these books and you're reading books. Very rarely does one book or one presentation completely change someone's life. Uh, But I'm a believer that a conversation can open a door, a book, a presentation. It can open a door for future possibilities. So when they hear that message from a different entity, maybe five years down the road, things can happen for them. And so, yeah, you never know. And, and as a leader, leaders oftentimes are trying to change and develop their team. It's rarely a one and done moment. You know, you build trust, you build connection, you build credibility with your team. They're going to be more open to your ideas and the direction that you'd like maybe them to develop in. And you as a leader, maybe you'd be open to, to, changing some ways that your, that your team could be teaching, you know, I, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole because I want to make sure we get to provoke because when I hear this, so I looked up the definition of provoke. Okay. Stimulate or give rise to, um, a reaction or emotion, typically a, to a strong or unwelcoming, uh, like situation. And so, you went bold with provoke. Now, maybe break is de- break it down to why you know what is provoking all about here, and how does it fit in, and, and sort of what's your perspective on this? So the origin is that we feel like we are living in um, a very uncertain time, as you highlighted at the start of the podcast. There are all sorts of issues that leaders are facing that uh, which all boil down to the basic premise of the future is most certainly going to be different from the past, whether you know you're a leader in business or you're a leader mm-hmm. in government or in the nonprofit sector, things are going to be different than they have been for the last while, right? And the driving force today, you know, is obviously lots of geopolitical uncertainty, but also the advance yep. of technology, yeah. mm-hmm. the, the advance of technology that is making possible business models that are an order of magnitude better than existing business models or an order of magnitude cheaper. And so leaders are faced with a choice where they can wait and see what the future brings and then respond to it. But there are degrees of freedom their degrees of freedom in responding are going to be a lot narrower. They're going to respond to the change. With Provoke, our thinking is that it's far better for leaders to be the driving force of the change itself. 
to instead of waiting to see what the future brings to shape it. Um, and so that's the mindset we want uh, we want leaders to take. And that is what we've written about in Provoke. And incidentally, just to bring us back for one second to the, the mm-hmm. way leaders do that, yeah. one of the concepts that we talk about in Detonate is the minimal viable move. And so what we don't, what often doesn't help is sudden step change. That's really hard to do. You're betting, you're kind of always, if you're betting the farm, you're putting a lot of risk and you're risking the company and either you choose not to do it, right? Because it feels too risky or it's more risky than it ought to be. And so in times of disruptive change, we think the path to getting to better outcomes is making a series of minimally viable moves, changing just a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to, you know, as- Evolution versus revolution, sort of that Martin, Mark Christensen Absolutely, but it's got to be constant. It's got to be constant, right? In a world that's changing Mm -hmm. rapidly, we don't have time to, we don't have time for evolutionary change because it's too slow, but it's got to be constant and deliberate. And so that's- So it's not to blow the thing up, not to detonate. Detonate is a bad thing as a leader? Well, detonate, interestingly, so we chose detonate with purpose because detonate is a controlled blast. It's not an explosion. It's a it's intentional and it's a detonation. Yes. It, it's, right, it's, it's obviously detonation. It's intentional. Like and it's in focused. construction, they're going to detonate dynamite to, to create a valley so they can build a bridge or something. Exactly. And they can do that. In you know when they do it in New York, they oftentimes you know detonate buildings that are adjacent to other buildings, but they don't blow up the other buildings. What we want leaders to detonate is their orthodoxies that have them clinging to past habits, mm. right? And so we want to get rid of the things um, like in the golfer. We want to get rid of beliefs and orthodoxies that things can't be different than what they are. And so detonate is about a call to action and provoke is about how might one do that? How mm-hmm. might one uh, see the future differently and then take action in order to shape it as opposed to waiting for the forces around them to shape it for themselves? Yeah, I like that. So leaders with your leader, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine someone with like a uh, getting ready for an annual review. And they're like, I'm going to get my team. I want you. I want you guys to uh, ad- adapt the leadership skill of detonation. <laughs> I'll say, what are you talking about? But it makes an awful lot of sense because one, it's a very visceral word. Like, hey, this has got. This is changing, and we're removing some some behavior, some habit we have that's contrary to the progress that we want to make. But it's controlled in a matter of of saying it's very specific of where we want to do it and how we want to do it. We want to do it in a very measured way. Yeah. Uh, and the thing, Ben, that often my my writing partner, Jeff Tuff, who is a co-author on both of these books, mm-hmm. it he he is fond of talking about orthodoxies. And the thing that we want to detonate is those orthodoxies that are unintentionally holding us back. My my favorite all-time example of orthodoxies in business is why supermarkets have a checkout, a fast checkout line for their worst customers. So the, <laughs> the, the, the guy that's coming in with, 
like just coming in to get milk gets a short expedited experience, right? Mm -hmm. To spend less than 10 bucks. But the mom who's carrying around her kids with a, with a cart filled with groceries, spending hundreds of dollars, you know, has to wait in a long line with the other moms. Seriously, they should get like the platinum checkout experience because they're the best customers. And the dude with the milk should have to wait in line. Right. <laughs> and so it's just, but it's, but it's an orthodoxy because that's the, always the way we've done it. And they all have yeah. them. And yeah. now I guess with COVID, we're moving a little bit more to self-checkout, but still like ask yourself, why is that? Because that has nothing to do with good customers. That's just the way we've always done it. So when you can challenge orthodoxies, when you can find them in your business, when it's often, and they're oftentimes the thing that people answer, well, that's just the way we do things around here. We could never do them differently. Then you start to unleash different possibilities about what you could mm -hmm. do. You start to frame questions differently. And so that's, that's the thing that we want people to start to do to create the future. I was going to ask that question and you just already pretty much nailed it there. Whereas when's, what's a sign or a moment when you know it's time to consider this, this, this detonation principle. And you said, Hey, that's the way we've always done it around here. Yeah. And <laughs> what do you the other thing is when you see, you can see trends coming like trends in business mm -hmm. are all around us. And the thing that you want to understand about trends and you have to select the ones that are most pertinent to your business model is you're looking for signs that they might be going through a phase change of whether they're a matter of if they'll come to fruition to a matter of when they'll come to fruition. Mm -hmm. If you can catch that phase change early on, mm -hmm. right, by doing sensing, by looking at different possibilities, by being curious about people's behavior and what's driving it, then the earlier you are able to move, the more you're able to shape the way that trend um, evolves. I mean, a, just a, a classic example is, you know, the way, you know, Tesla created the electric vehicle. It didn't wait for uh, the electric vehicle market. It didn't wait for consumers to be demanding it. It said, we're going to create behavior. Now, they were probably still acting when it was a matter of if, mm -hmm. but the way mm -hmm. that the rest of the auto industry is copying now it's because it's not a question of whether if you go out 10 or 15 years, the majority of new vehicles are going to be electric. So they don't have any degrees of freedom. They're trying to catch up now. And Tesla created this market. So for me, that's a, a good example. But we see leaders miss these opportunities all day long. We start off provoked with a story about a leader I spent time with in the cable industry and 2007, 2008, where we saw the early uh, signs that there were this small 1.75% segment of customers who didn't want any video content with their internet. And the presumption was that maybe mm -hmm. this is a group of people who have lower income and they can't afford it. And it, mm -hmm. no, they want the best internet possible. They just don't want all that video uh, content yeah. to come with it. This was the first sign of cord cutting. And instead of exhibiting curiosity, the executive in question was saying 1.75%. Why would I care? And just a blip. Um, yeah. It's just a blip. But that blip was, if you monitored it, you know, it's like watching a mole, right? You keep watching and does it grow until it gets too big and you don't, you know, you got to deal with it. This is where you, by thinking about it, by being curious early on, you have the opportunity to do something about it. 
Or is creating change and provoking change, are they similar or are they different? I think they're similar, um, mm-hmm. but say more about what you, what was behind, what's behind your. Well, if you're going to create change versus provoke change, it seems like they're different. Creating change to create change versus provoke change. So creating change and provoking change, they, they seem similar, but when I hear provoke, it almost means to you're encouraging an action and someone else is amplifying it or it's it's like you're triggering something and it's more of like a ripple effect because you're provoking. I'm thinking about a leader trying to create change in their team versus provoke change in their team. I haven't thought a lot about it, but it seems different. I wonder what your thoughts are there. I think under, so the way I, the way I think, so I, I will say two things. So one is I absolutely agree with the concept that sometimes the best way to get change is to try to create a ripple effect or a bank shot where you are acting on another actor and that actor, you know, is trying to create. And in the world where we live in a business in particular, where ecosystems are increasingly relevant, understanding the dynamics of what will cause change and that ripple effect to occur is really important. When I think about the difference of provoke versus create, I think about it as urgency. And, um, and what we are, what the, the thing that Jeff and I talk a lot about is that the most, the, the, the basic subatomic element of business is customer behavior. And when we talk about provoking, it's about being the cause of new customer behavior that will give you advantage in the marketplace. Okay. So when Uber was first launching its business, what it wanted to understand was to what extent would customers be willing to use their service, mm-hmm. um, even though they didn't have the network effects that they enjoy today with lots of drivers and lots of customers creating demand and supply. So what they did to provoke the change was they paid drivers to be on the road, even though there weren't customers yet, mm. so that they could assess the few customers they had, whether they would buy the service if they were replicating the kind of wait times that would be consistent. The problem was if they weren't provoking the change, they would have said, well, we don't have enough drivers. So the customer experience is going to be a 20, 25 minute wait time. That's not a good read on whether customers will buy this. So they were provoking the change by using capital to pay the drivers to be on the road. That's a different sort of mindset than trying to do more of a passive test. So provoke to us is about the urgency with which you you create the change and you shape it. Wow, very cool. I can definitely see that being a great skill to develop in your leaders because the other word that comes to me to, uh, to me is just strategy. It just seems so strategic and pointed because you're doing it with capital. You're being so focused on creating that specific change uh, that you like to see. Uh, So some really great insights there for detonating and provoking. I want to make sure, you know, you know, see that really that I have a chance to, to, to dive into this other topic with you, which is you're a Deloitte executive. I mean, you know, you're a Deloitte executive, but why in the world are you writing two books, right? This is, this is a, having been through the, the book writing process myself, I know 
it's a marathon. It's like multiple marathons. And uh, you did it once. Now you've done it twice. Uh, what's your insight or your advice for leaders who are maybe sitting there today listening and they're like, you know what? I thought about writing a book, but I just don't have the time. I I would say you have to be all in in order to do it. So I look, Jeff is a incredibly skilled writer. Um, his writing comes really easily to him. I am not that. Um, it takes me, it was real work to, uh, to get detonate done. Provoke was a little easier, um, because I now had the, some of the experiences I knew what worked for me and what, and mm-hmm. what didn't. Work for me. Um, but I am a, you know, I, I, you know, I was interested in saying, uh, I was giving a lot of public, uh, speak. I was doing a lot of public speaking events and I just thought that it would be pretty fun to codify some of what we were thinking. Mm -hmm. And Jeff and I were looking for a a reason to do some writing together. I will say Ben, I discovered for myself what worked for me. Um, and I hacked my way through it. So at the time of writing detonate, my daughter, who's now eight was three And I knew that most of the writing, if I wanted to be a good dad, most of my writing was going to take place between one and four on Saturdays and Sundays when she napped because she was still doing three hour naps. Nice. Uh I had to, but I had to get it done in those moments. Otherwise it wasn't going to happen because it wasn't going to happen during the week um, as easily, you know, maybe from five to six in the morning when I got up, but that was like at the end of the book. So this, I, I hacked my way to it by saying, that's my writing time. And then I used an app called Flow State, which is a, if you want to think about detonation, um, it's a writing app that keeps writers in their flow. And the way it does that is you write. And if you stop typing for more than five seconds, it erases everything that you've written. So the incentive is to you just keep writing and you finish it because you you know as a writer Ben that it's really hard to get that first draft done and it's a lot easier to edit it once there's something on the page. So I use that and I just and we had this wonderful um, uh, person helping us, Megan Sullum, who mm-hmm. was like a taskmaster with us, saying you must have chapter this done by this day. And Jeff and I split up the chapters. And, and it was great to have like that little competition to say like, okay, you write that chapter, I'll write this chapter, then we're going to trade and edit each other's work. Um, so I knew that if Jeff was going to finish his, I had to show up with mine done. And so we hacked our way to it and then Provoke became a little easier. That is a brutal app, but I love it. Y'all, Flow State app, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I wish I would have used that because you're right. Getting it, get that first draft is going to be not going to be pretty. Occasionally you meet someone who just puts out sparkling first drafts, but that is not most people. And so getting that, having an app that provokes you, like you say. Yes, indeed. And, or that's really detonation too, right? <laughs> uh, to get that book down is, is huge. And so what are some ways, so maybe leaders are thinking there's okay now, okay, so some good ideas there about getting it done. As an executive, what have been the benefits to you that you've noticed from getting your books done? I think people recognize, in particular, I see my job on our uh, leadership team as to bring up the things that we're seeing um, that are 
you know, not matters of if they'll come to fruition to when and to figure out ways to create momentum within uh, in Deloitte in the US, a 6,000 leadership team of our partners and uh, principals and managing directors mm-hmm. and to create the systems that promote that change. And, and given that I've written books uh, that other leaders that our clients resonate with, it, it's, it's helped a bit with um, the credibility that I, that I and frankly my team can bring um, mm-hmm. when talking about matters of if to when. And it's also, um, you know, just it's, it's good because I can go have these conversations with clients and help them blow up their orthodoxies. Um, did the did Deloitte sort of directly support the book, or is it more of an indirect? You can do it, but it's not not part of what we're doing. Deloitte was incredibly supportive, so okay. we had not when you know it was Jeff and our Jeff and my interest, but when we shared it with the relevant folks at Deloitte, they were nothing but supportive and have been amazing. Uh, in supporting our endeavors. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download this simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. What's your advice for someone who wants to get to ask their company to support their book project? I would make it easy to, and this is something that I, I know you like to ask about um, around success strategies. Um, yeah, hit me. One, one success strategy is make it easy force the someone on the other end to say yes. So understand what their concerns are likely to be. I don't, you know, for, um, for Jeff and me, I would imagine that people would be concerned, oh, you're writing a book. Does that mean you're going to need time away from your, uh, other activities? And for me with my, uh, boss at the time, I said, the answer is no, I'm doing this Saturday and Sunday from one to four. So, Normally, either I'm doing other personal stuff at that time, but it's not taking away from my time. This is a passion mm-hmm. project. Now, that may yep. not be true for everybody. So, but with the, the the strategy there is to understand what the concerns are likely to be, and then uh, and then address them. I love that. I love that a lot. And so, make it easy to say yes. Anticipate their concerns. If they're thinking, hey, like I can't do that huge project for that customer today because I need to work, I need to write my own book, they might say, no, 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 no. Yeah. But if you're like, hey, and, and by the way, I love I, and kind of going back to the one to four thing. I think that's so good because you, you you fit it within a container that works for you and your family, and it really increases your intensity because you're like, I've only got three hours today. I've got to do it. Do it now. For me, I was. I'd been blogging for years and then I thought I would just slap together my blog. And of course that was not true. Uh, so I had, I, I, I was doing like one hour a day. I was doing every day, uh, from five to 6 AM. And then I was putting it aside when I was working in corporate and uh, yeah, having that kind of discipline. So this has been 
man, a really cool interview. And as you know, I didn't get to most of my questions, um, <laughs> but, this, but this is absolutely great. Uh, so putting the cherry on top of the interview, Steve, what's your parting thought for listeners? Well, the, the thing that I would say as it relates to just being successful, that the thing that I have observed in others that I almost always find correlates with success is some humble curiosity. Hmm. And I, I think it's super important in a world that's changing really rapidly to be empathetic and try to understand the behavior of potential customers. And that's a good thing, no matter where you sit in an organization, what level you're at, what role you're playing. And the humble piece of it is important because you're not going after it saying, I know for sure, but you're curious about why people do the things they do mm -hmm. and what might cause them to behave differently. That to me is a really important thing to do. And just remember that, you know, behavior might and could be different. We've learned so much about what's important to people and how behaviors change during the last several years of COVID. Um, and, uh, and I, and behaviors continue to evolve and change as, as new technologies and the pandemic uh, changes and hybrid work becomes a reality. Um, and so it just, that humble and continued curiosity is so critical, I think, Ben, uh, for what future leaders can do. There you heard it, everybody. A new term for me. I've heard humility, I've heard curiosity, but combine the two and you get humble curiosity. And I think that's something that will be helpful to a lot of leaders and their teams. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Ben. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.